passage that it is drawn from being in Lamentations chapter 3. And if you've ever read the book of Lamentations, Great Is Thy Faithfulness is a different song entirely. It is a wonderful song. It is one of America's more favorite hymns. It's probably one of the more likely sung hymns that most people are familiar, if they're familiar at all with Christianity. And the hymns, it's one of the more familiar ones that is made mention of, is Great Is Thy Faithfulness. And surely when you read it in light of Lamentations, one of the darkest books in all of the Bible, one of the most depressive, I'm not going to say depressing, but it is a depressive book because of the setting and the nature of the content of that book is it will just about get you down until you remember that his mercies are new every morning. They're not just new yesterday. They're new every single morning. Be that a cloudy morning, as we have so often awoken to here lately, or be it the beauty that was on display this morning as we got to see the sunrise. And over the last few days, no matter what it is, great is his faithfulness. What a wonderful song for us to be able to gather together and sing unto him as great as his faithfulness because just as he told Noah, he said, I will put my bow in the cloud and I will remember, beloved, that is the same charge that we are able to make with God today is that he is the one that is faithful. He is the one that is able to keep it. As many times as you and I have fallen, great is his faithfulness. What a wonderful song to go look up the lyrics to this week. Maybe even get brave and read the book of Lamentations and sing it aloud to yourself. That's been one of the most interesting things I've had record of. I was asking, I heard one gentleman testifying that what his daily devotional routine was. And he says he has the copy of the worship hymnal, as you and I have. He has the worship hymnal, and he'll just start singing it. He started on page one, and every morning he sings a different one, and he just sings through the songs. And I imagine I've heard the brother's voice. It probably is not the best quality in the world, and yet he sings anyway. And apparently, I didn't even think to know this, but I was listening to something else. Christians sing more than just about any other group in the world. We sing perhaps the most. Now, some people sing in their car all week long. That is true. They sing popular songs. But as far as coming together and singing psalms, it is something that you have to be in one of the major religions. But especially in particularly Christianity, we have a richness of singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, even as we are instructed to do. Just all of a reminder is great is his faithfulness, and it matters. But this morning, we find ourselves again in the book of Galatians, in the book of Galatians, and this morning what I would like to do is, you may stand for this, I think we can make it 24 verses together, I'm going to go ahead and read the whole chapter this morning as we stand for the reading and reverencing of the word of God together, I'm going to go ahead and read the first chapter, do not intend to go through the whole first chapter, but intend to read it this morning. So the book of Galatians chapter 1, the book of Galatians chapter 1 beginning in verse 1, even as we worked our way last week through verse 5, but in the book of Galatians chapter 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and to all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 6, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. 
As we have, as we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Do or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Verse eleven. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my father. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him fifteen days. But other of the apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God I lie not. Afterwards I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea which were in Christ. But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed, and they glorified God in me. Will you be seated this morning, even as we go to the Lord in prayer again. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you for this book of Galatians that we find ourselves in now. We pray, Lord, that you're just opening our hearts and our minds to it, God, that you're giving us eyes to see, ears to hear, God, that you're also planting that seed, which in due time is going to bring forth a harvest that you would have it to, God. Father, we pray for a richness of harvest, and we pray that we sow richly in the Spirit of God, Father, that you would uh, cause a great reaping even in that day. Father, we pray that you would be with us in that accord, that we're always pursuing you, pursuing your will, your way. We pray for the ones that have in this community and those that have us in our lives that have never known you in the free part of sin as we so often call it. God, we pray that they would be drawn to you, that you would use your spirit to draw them to you, that it caused them to repent and trust only in you, O oh God, Father, that they may be born again and have life everlasting with your Son, even as we look forward to. We pray to be that open witness to that world today, O oh God. Father, we pray these things in thy Son, Jesus Christ, most holy and wonderful name. Amen and amen. So this morning, Lord willing, again, I'm just going to go ahead and say this, so maybe you're not getting long-winded, is I intend to be shorter-winded this morning because I intend only on working our way through verses 6 through 10 this morning. All week long, I've looked at the Lord, I've been praying to the Lord and saying, Lord, wouldn't you give us a longer passage? And yet there has been such, I don't know for you, I hope it comes across a richness in dwelling in just these handful of verses, even as we are looking at what Paul is writing to the Galatians about, how he's prompting them. And again, we know from the other church uh, epistles that we have, this was not the customary way that Paul wrote his letter. Was uh, We see that usually he has the greeting, even as we worked our way through last week. And yet in verse 6, usually there's a thanksgiving. So are we missing something between verses 5 and 6? I submit to you that no, indeed, we are not missing anything. 
thing, but there is a problem in the life of Galatia, of the churches in Galatia, and Paul has chosen to deal with it swiftly. Now, there is an argument, depending on which way you see it. It seems to be that Galatians was written when Paul was a younger man. So that tells us the personality of Paul. He's a little bit quicker. The younger a man is, usually the more expediency he acts with. He acts a little bit more with the expediency. And as men get older, they have a tendency to slow down. I don't know if that's just because they're moving slower or if they actually have more wisdom and they're moving slower. I don't know what it is. But either way, God used the personality of Paul to correct the Galatians here, even as he begins after his greeting and greeting them from God, positioning himself to make them realize this letter ultimately is from God. Everything that is flowing from Paul is a directive from God, not from himself. Paul is not claiming it from his own position, but he is claiming these truths from the position of God, reminding us that even as we share the faith with others, we do so not from the position of ourselves, but from the positions of God. The story goes that in other third world countries to where the prosperity gospel also seems to grip just as much as it does in the United States. I've heard one pastor often remark about he would be in Brazil in particular, and he'd be riding with somebody, and he'd talk about he'd be in the cab, and this cab driver would be like, oh yes, Jesus did this for me, I got saved, I was a lost, and he was telling of all the physical things God did for him, and he was saying all these physical things, and yet missing the saving work that God had done in his life. And instead, Paul is right the opposite. Surely Paul could say, God's done all these different things in my life, but the way that Paul addresses it is from God himself. I submit to you that when you're sharing the faith with somebody else, you don't actually have to talk about yourself. Most people will tell you your testimony is one of the most powerful things. And, beloved, your testimony is not the gospel. It may be a tool that you use in order to communicate the gospel. But let us make sure that we are also sharing the gospel. Let us make sure we are also sharing Christ Jesus. Paul opens with that. Paul will close with that. And all through the middle of it, that will be Paul. So when you share the faith, when you are trying to evangelize in whatever small capacity, make sure that you are sharing the gospel, not just your testimony. Make sure you're starting from God. Not just for himself, but Paul does begin to tell a story here. He says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. This is a first-generation church. This is a generation that's not even yet a century old. If your Bible indicates like mine does, it indicates this letter was probably written in the late 40s. Some people would argue as late as the late 50s, but either way, it's only a span of about 10 to 15 years that this book would have likely have been written in, and it's not long after about 33, 34 AD when Christ is hung upon a cross, whatever one that was. I don't know. I wasn't there, so I can't tell you, but in whichever one it was, this is a baby church, and yet this baby church has already got colossal problems with it, and Paul is saying, I marvel. Paul is not just saying, I'm took back by it. He said, I'm marveling by it. This is something that he's looking at, and he's pondering, he's fixated on, saying, I just don't understand. I don't know about y'all, but I've had the experiences in my life to where I look at somebody's behavior and say, Lord, I know they know better. Why are they living this way? Why are they living and perpetuating this lifestyle of sin, even though they openly claim to know better than it? I marvel that you are so so soon removed from the grace of Christ unto another gospel. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you. Notice, let me repeat my, let me, let me fix myself there. It says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ. Notice that it says from him. The way that we are removed when we are entering into a life of sin is that we have been removed from Jesus. When we have gone into error for whatever means it was, 
I don't see the Galatians. Maybe they are sowing under the flesh. We're going to have some problems with the flesh later on that we deal with in this book. But at least it seems to be the first problem that he is dealing with is the teaching that is involved in the church. They have removed themselves from Jesus himself. That's what they have done. That what happens when we sin is actually moving away from God himself. Look at Adam and Eve. They had the same story. Is that when they had sinned against God, the first thing that they went and did, they found themselves to be without clothing. So they said, hey, we've got to go get some type of clothes on. So they went to the fig tree and they put the fig leaves on. And if you've ever known a fig tree and the fig leaves, it is something that withers and corrupts so fast that it's not going to supply any ample amount of clothing. It's as if they had put nothing on. And what they had put on would die almost as quickly as they were putting it on. They were trying to separate themselves from God because they knew something within them was not right. Even the Israelites, when they were trying to get, quote, closer to God, what they found themselves doing was getting further from God. They wanted a God that they could worship in the image of the golden calf. They wanted something they could see and something that they could get close to. But even as they did something of themselves in order to get closer to God, it separated them from God. And that's what all of our sin ultimately does is it separates us from God. It can be sins that we openly know are sins. It can be sins that it's just morally the rest of the world would look at us and say, well, clearly that's wrong. Or maybe a sin that they used to say clearly that is wrong. Or perhaps it is something that we subtly add to the teachings of God. Perhaps it is something, a requirement that we add to come in here. Perhaps I say that when you come in these doors, you've got to be dressed in a suit and tie. Well, two of you this morning have done missed the memo and y'all didn't wear a suit and tie. So apparently, according to some standards, y'all should be ousted from the church. Some of me, sometimes I let my hair get too long to be accepted among certain brethren churches, as I call them. And, and I, my hair gets never gets down to my shoulders, and yet it gets too long. And I've got to make sure I have my hair cut. Now, some of that comes from biblical principles, but these are some of the audacious things that if you don't model every single one of these small things, you are not counted among them. False teaching creeps into the church unawares, even as the book of Jude proclaims. And Paul is telling them what happens when this is the case is, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. They've removed themselves from him, ultimately that him pointing to Christ himself, even as they were called into the grace of Christ. But it's not something to grasp, but it's something that you're called into. I love the language that Paul uses there is that when you're called into this building, you're inside the presence of this building. When you're called into the grace of Christ, it's not something that you just hold on to and that you can lose your grip. If I was to hold on to the bumper of a car and it begins taking off, my feet can only run so fast, and that's not fast at all, and then I'm going to lose my grip. I'm not no longer in it. But if I want to get in the vehicle and I want to go somewhere, then I get inside the vehicle and it is able to take me somewhere. And that's exactly the same picture of this grace of Christ is that you have entered into this and yet you're removing yourself from him who called you into the grace of Christ. Even worse, unto another gospel. That word gospel, meaning good news, is ultimately what it's translated. Euangelion is the terminology for it. And all that fancy word is, it's two words that are put together, euon and then gelion, and it means good news over there. And that's just a fancy $5 terminology. Can I give you a $7 word? Y'all have heard me say it before. Is the proto-euangelion. The proto-euangelion just simply means the first time the gospel is ever stated in the word of God. Do you know where the proto-euangelion is? Do you know where the first proclamation of the good news of Christ is first purported unto his people? 
It's in Genesis chapter 3. It's where he's telling Eve that, the, that her offspring is going to crush the serpent's head. Y'all heard me reference that a couple of weeks ago, perhaps, or a few weeks ago, whenever it was. Y'all heard me reference that. That is the first telling of the good news. From the very beginnings of the foundations of the earth, from chapter 3 of the book of Genesis, the good news has been being proclaimed. And in every generation, something was pointed to the good news of Jesus. Miss Tara and I, we snuck down to Whitesburg a couple of weeks ago, and we got to hear Brother Mike Bagwell as he was preaching through Psalm 22. And we missed it. Apparently, he started out in Psalm 22 in verse 1. And he said that first week as he was doing his review, or that first service as he was doing his review, he said, we just preached the gospel from Psalms chapter 22, verse 1. And I thought about how true that was, that he just preached the gospel. It says in the beginning of Psalm chapter 22, verse 1, it says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? To understand the reality that he had to forsake his son, that he might lay on him the sin of you and I, that we might be made righteous in the image of Christ, that we might have righteousness of Christ applied unto us because our sin was applied unto him, that you and I might have life everlasting. That is what relates us to him because Christ was forsaken. You and I do not have to be forsaken. You and I can eternally dwell in the presence of God. Did you hear as the psalmist David was proclaiming those same truths? He's saying, God, I got enemies on the left of me. God, the enemies on the right of me. Everywhere my enemies are dwelling, and yet you, O oh God, are in charge. Do you notice that oh, every psalm seems to ultimately end in that? That even David at the end of Psalm 71, as he was proclaiming there, he said, I am old and gray-headed, yet let me tell another generation. It's been one of my favorite sermons I've ever preached in the world came from Psalm 71 just because I got to look at old timers and I got to tell them just keep on proclaiming the word of God even in your gray headedness. Now, fortunately, none of you, even if you have a little bit of gray, a little bit of salt in your head this morning, none of you are old yet. I don't consider any of you old. So all of you have a youth about you. But even to the older generations, King David is saying in my, in my oldness, in my old age, use me according to these purposes. Do you know that as you get older, there ought to be a strengthening of grace in your life? You ought not to be the same way that you were a year ago. Consider your life a year ago, and are you the same person that you were a year ago? Are you dealing with some of the same sins? Probably so, actually. If you really were to sit down and say, Lord, am I dealing with some of the same sins that I have to fight in my life daily? You're probably dealing with some of the same ones. But how's your battle with those sins going? Is your battle with those sins greater than what it was? Are you trusting Christ evermore in your sinfulness? Are you living the same exact way or worse than what you were a year ago? Are you growing in grace? Instead, what the Galatians have done is remove themselves from grace. I'll never forget the image that uh, my former pastor, Brother Blitz Tan, painted. He's got a house on, highway, on the side of Highway 27, and it's got a bunch of white and red on it, or it's red with a bunch of white trimming, trim work on it and everything. And it's high up on a hill from the side of the road. He said, I didn't think it would get dirty. He said, that house gets filthy. All that white and everything on it, it just gets plumb filthy from all of that road traffic and all of that debris floating up there. Beloved, sometimes we think that if we're just standing still and we're just living the same way and we're just saying rut and same routine that we've always been in, that everything's going to be exactly the same. But the truth of the matter is, if you're not actively working, you're just getting dirty and dirty. Have owned the house for two years this weekend. Two years ago this weekend, y'all, we had been slaving on Friday, Saturday, and then we slaved again on Monday over there. I don't know why my family put up with me as we were trying to get this disastrous-looking house that we bought off of this guy. We were trying to get it livable so that when Tara and I were going to get married in that July, that we were able to live there. And y'all, the house was just filthy. Everything about the house was filthy. And you know, we got it good and clean, but the problem is it didn't stay clean. I don't know why, but it just didn't stay clean. 
all of a sudden I'm having to clean this oven every single week. I don't know why, but we decided to buy wide appliances. And it's just something about that wide appliance. It shows every little thing on it. Don't buy a wide appliance. It's crazy. I don't know why we do it. And yet this morning, even, I'm just cleaning because it gives me a good routine to do. Some people consider it working. God bless you if you do. But I was cleaning up above the oven and I was trying to get it clean. I thought, you know, when we bought this house two years ago, this was clean. And that was clean. And what I've learned about it is, is I got to clean every single day just about. It's not that I just get to clean it once. It's that I've got to clean it again and again. I wonder if the problem with the Galatians were, they thought that when the work was done, the work was done, they never had to do it. I wonder if that's what we think about salvation sometimes. And it is true. When you're saved, you're saved. It's what I believe. It's what I believe the Bible truly and fully teaches. Is when you're saved, you're saved. Beloved, salvation will cost you nothing, but sanctification will cost you everything. Is that, beloved, we have to keep cleaning. We got the house. Me and Mr. Terry will technically know this owns the house, but we act like we own the house. And as we do, we're cleaning that house every single week. We're trying to take care of it every single week because it needs it, because it has to be taken care of. It's an active life that we have to live. And my dad never understood why he didn't like me to leave dishes in the sink over there. It's because they need to go to the dishwasher because they've got to run the dishwasher. Because if you leave them in the sink, they're going to be left in the sink. They're going to pile up. All of these problems with sinfulness, when we leave them behind us, we don't even realize it, but all of a sudden we have removed ourselves from him who called us into the grace unto another gospel. Because the problem with my father not wanting me to put all the dishes in the sink, which I'm still bad when I go over there to do, by the way, not in my house. Make sure I put them on the right side. Make sure I do the right things because it's my house. I'm going to make sure they're in the right position. For sneaking like that. But what I realize is I was acting as if I had better news than what my father had for me. My father was trying to teach me if you will rinse them out, if you will put them in the dishwasher, it will be easier to maintain the cleanliness and the efficiency of this house. If you will just stay on the logistical course that you need to stay on, it will be better. But I saw, man, I know something better than you. soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel which in Paul's satirical nature which is not another which is not another but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ that's exactly what Paul addresses here and I love the kindness with which he approaches the church in Galatia he acknowledges it's not every one of you what has happened is somebody has come in and troubled you and has perverted the gospel of Christ. It has mixed it. It has put things in which do not belong to it. How easy it is to do with all things church life. I've been reading this book. I've been hearing it. Y'all, I'm a painfully slow reader. I only read a little bit by little bit in this book so that I can understand and ascertain what's going on. And I keep reading about it. It's about different things and different structures of worship and stuff in the church that I didn't even realize was a historical practice of the church that we just happened to fall into. Because it's just the way that it's always been done. And there's a temptation just to get into these things and to add to the things of God. To pervert it. To mix in with things that do not need to be. That that's what happens in every generation of the church. Something creeps in that we have to address. Y'all heard me make mention of last week, even as we were trying to address a little bit of the whole of this book, is there have been historic creeds and confessions and different statements of faith that have emerged in the life of the church in order to address problems that happen. Beloved, we're not the first generation. I don't imagine we'll be the last. Some people think he's coming back tomorrow. He might. I don't know. But we need to know that we cannot pervert the gospel. 
but that we give the gospel in its most pure sense. I don't get to add to the gospel. That's why I tell people so often, so many times I've heard it by good meaning people. I mean that. Some of the finest meaning people I've ever met in my life. Just tell your testimony. That's the way to share the gospel. No, it is not. No, it is profoundly not. To share the gospel is to address that God is the creator of all things, that we are fallen and sinful, broken people, that Christ is the only means of salvation that we have, and that there's an eternity ahead based on whatever happens then. If you're one of the redeemed, you're going to spend eternity with him. If you're one of the unredeemed, you're going to spend eternity in a lake of fire ultimately. That's the gospel. That's the good news is that Christ has come to redeem you. Don't just tell your testimony that when I got in church and I began doing this, beloved, all those things may be true and wonderful things. All those things may be a part of your sanctification experience. Do you know that your sanctification experience might be slightly different than mine? Do you know that God might use something else to sanctify you the way he's used to sanctify me? Y'all want a podcast recommendation? Come to me. I got a, I got a laundry list full of them. I'll send them to you. Most of them probably are going to help you grow. But they sure do help me grow. I got a laundry list of books I can recommend to you. Some of them probably aren't going to help you grow. Some of them would really help you grow. But some of them just won't. There are going to be things that God uses in your sanctification experience that he does not use in mine. Be sure that we don't make that a part of the gospel. God might call you not to partake in something. I believe this to a fault. And I'll just share my story with you. Is the, is the use of nicotine. Some people swear up and down it is a sin among sins and that you ought to not to do it and then it destroys the body of the temple of the Lord. And you know what? If you believe that, you better not partake in it. But do you know how many saints I've known that will stand there out there on that front porch smoking a cigarette like it's a freight train? But they're good people of God. I don't believe you for a minute they're lost in sinfulness because they smoke a cigarette. Now, it might be a conviction of you not to do it. May it happen this way. I used to be a tobacco user. Frequently, my family knows this. I used to be a, a tobacco user. I even had one who said, I, I never forget this. He said, he's a preacher. He just knows. I don't care. He's still doing it. I'm like, I don't know why. I just sat with me wrong for a long time. But he used that example. I thought, well, that's odd. And then other things happened in my life. And all of a sudden, I realized for me, I had to give up. Now, there are days that I love that one right now. Not right now, but there are days that that's the inclination. I'd love to have another bit of tobacco right now. That is something I enjoy, something I really enjoy. The only reason that I gave it up as a part of my sanctification experience was because I knew God might use it to reach somebody else. God might, it might be used to turn somebody away from the gospel. It became a part of my sanctification experience. But, beloved, it is not part of the gospel. It is not part of me telling somebody, you better not do it. Some of the finest Christian folks I've ever known were used to back in this day. I had to take you to a preacher right now. He's probably got one in his back pocket, ready to go after service. Charles Spurgeon would smoke a cigar after every single service that he did. He would finish the service. He would go out wherever they greeted people. He'd light a cigar. One person came up to him and said, Dear Mr. Spurgeon, don't you think that that is excessive? He said, Madam, I would consider it excessive if I was smoking two at one time. That was Spurgeon's response. I'm not recommending the use of tobacco to anybody. I think y'all want to use it. I think there's plenty of reasons. I can go and show you every scientific thing. But the moment that I tell you that it is a part of salvation is when I have entered into something that is wrong. The moment that I add things under the gospel, the moment that I tell you on the basis of my experience of sanctification, I have perverted the gospel. You say, but that doesn't seem to be a perversion. Do you know what Eve did in the Garden of Eden with Satan? Do you know that Eve stopped trusting in the word of God the moment that she added unto what God had said? She said, we're not even supposed to touch it. There's good wisdom in not touching it. Why would you touch it if you're not going to partake in it? Everything that Eve said was wise. She perverted the good news of God. No, 
That wasn't the proto-euangelion. That wasn't the first giving that somebody was going to redeem them. That's not what it was. But she perverted the word of God when she added to the word of God. It seemed to be something that is good. And it amazes me how many Christian folks I'll go around and I'll share that same story. And I'll get, well, yeah, you all want to touch it. That was a good thing she said. And I'm like, no, no. And she adds to the word of God. She has perverted the word of God. Though it be something probably wise, it's not what God hath said. It says in verse 8, it says, But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. I think Paul's using a little bit of satire there. I think Paul's saying, Though we, or even an angel from heaven, and that old country fried example of even just the audacious claim to say, even an angel from heaven, I think that's what Paul is saying. Is Paul is wanting these Galatians to get the picture of the severity of this. Though we or anybody else, even an angel from heaven, preach to you anything else, let him be accursed. And then look what it says in verse 9. It repeats the language. It says, And we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. If the Bible says it one time, you ought to pay attention to it. If the Bible says it two times, you ought to really pay attention to it. And if he says the same thing two verses in a row, you really, really ought to pay attention to it. It's interesting that word accursed. I looked up what it meant because I'm just curious. And I love, in these epistles, I love looking up the Greek and all these different things to see the meaning that's behind it and everything. And this one shocked me. It's an offering. Now, what do you mean they accursed? It's an offering. Why do you translate it first as an offering? The most common use of this word is to say an offering. Do you know that when he says, let him be accursed, that's exactly what he's saying. He's saying, let him be offered up to God. But not as a good one, but as a damned offering. I say that in the proper use of that word. But as a condemned offering, something that God is going to consume in his wrath. We're not to mess around with false teaching. We're not to mess around with adding things to the gospel. As your pastor, if I start to add things, if I start to add requirements that are not biblical, y'all need to have a quick conversation with me. If I persist in it, y'all need to remove me. If we have a member that persists in teaching these things to other people, we need to admonish them, have correction, and if they persist in it, then, then we need to remove them from whatever we need to remove them from. Be that a teaching position, I pray not that it would have to go all the way to membership. But if it means a membership issue, beloved, we are not to mess around with these things. Paul says it twice. Let him be accursed. That's not a good thing. That's not a pleasant thing. It says, let him be accursed. In verse 10, he answers why. In verse 10, can almost be transitional. Almost, verse 10 seems to go with the 11th or the rest of the chapter. But yet here it is also that it goes with this. And this is how Paul rests this particular section, I would say. He says, for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Our mission is not to please anybody else. My mission is not to please y'all. I care about y'all. I love y'all. I want to take care of y'all. I want to tend to the flock of God as best I can. And you all as members here, the ones that are members here, you have a responsibility and a duty to care for one another too. There's a tending to one another here. There is a responsibility to one another. But at the end of the day, you're not the one that I have to please. That's God and God alone. Y'all can all be mad at me. And I'm just going to confess I'm not going to like it. I don't like it when people mad at me. I really don't. It just gets one of them I don't like to confront. I actually, I seem like I might be a confrontational guy. I don't know. But I don't like to confront unless it just has to be confronted. 
I've seen the Word of God work in so many ways. And that's my commitment is to continue to faithfully proclaim the Word of God. I'll never forget this example of uh, Brother, uh, Brother Butch's team. I, I, I love him, Brother. I've enjoyed using him as an example. I, I use him as an example again. There was a situation that happened when he was pastor of Pilgrim Rest. And it was a persistent situation in this couple's life. And he just continued faithfully preaching the gospel. He never went to them. Never went to them. Never said, hey, this is something that needs to be corrected. Never went to them. And they come to him and they said, Brother, there's something wrong about it. This is a sinful situation that needs to be dealt with. And they dealt with it. He never had to confront them. He never said a word to them. They just felt the conviction of it. They fixed it because they listened to the preaching of the Word of God. Do you want to know what encourages me about that? Is the fact that I saw the Word of God work. Is that I saw that God Himself is sufficient. That I saw that Brother Butch was not trying to please me, but he was trying to please God. In preaching those sermons that he did, it was not going to please that couple. It was not going to please a lot more in that congregation. But instead, he surrendered himself to God, and he did those things, knowing that he's not trying to persuade men, but he's trying to persuade God. He's trying to please God instead. He's a servant of Jesus Christ. Let us all be the servants of Jesus Christ. If I could be a good alliterating Baptist, let me give you three points to sit with here. One is the singularity of Christ. That it is only Christ that you're supposed to serve. It's the singularity of Christ. Next, I would present to you that it is the sufficiency of Christ. That he's sufficient to get the job done. That you only need Christ. That you need no other. But that he is the only one that you ever need. And then I'll give you the last one that I think Paul is working in in verse 10. He says, I'm talking about the supremacy of Christ, that he is supreme above all else. If you're to reflect in these verses, just take those three with you, the, the singularity of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, and the supremacy of Christ. If you need those points, get with me afterward. There's nothing magical about them, but it helps me to wrap my brain around this text a little bit better. When you read this text and you see God, you see, if I was to tell you the one driving point that I think Paul is trying to make is that God and God alone is sufficient. Brother Stephen Lawson, you've heard me quote him many a times or talk about him many a times. He started out as uh, he was going to law school. That didn't work out. And then he wound up as a banker for a time in order to pay bills. And when he was working as a banker, you, you have to know what the money is. And you have to know what's counterfeit and what's not counterfeit. And he said, they didn't teach us to recognize 100 cops of counterfeits. They taught us how to recognize the real thing. And beloved, if you want to know how to, if you want to know what a counterfeit is, study the real thing. So that when you know God, and you know Him truly as He is, and you know the gospel, you know the gospel truly as it is, you know a counterfeit because you know what the real thing is. I don't have to study all the counterfeits. I don't have to study all the other religions of this world. Though that's not always necessarily bad. I'm not saying you should never ever study what another religion is doing. I'm just saying you don't have to make it your primary stuff. But you do have to make this your primary got to think of it, and I'll end you with this. There's a movie that there's a famous line from this guy's going around, he's talking to his wife, he's saying, I need this item, and uh, he said, it's for the greater good, and the response of, of his wife is, I'm the greatest good you're ever going to have. Beloved, it's a funny line, but the truth of it remains here, that when we look to Christ, he's the greatest good that we've got, he is the good news, he is the greatest good news, of, of good news there is not another, and when you look to him, great is his faith. That, beloved, all you have to look at is to look to Christ Jesus and know that he is the greatest news, he's the greatest good you're ever going to have. 
beloved. He is the sufficiency of our hope. He's the singularity of our hope. He is the supremacy of our hope. Everything about it is that Christ and Christ alone is central. And let me leave you with this. The challenge that we have is to actually believe that he is sufficient. We often want to take Christ and add things to him. Stop that. That's the best way I know how to tell you. Stop that. Archie Campbell on the hall would always tell somebody that it hurts when I do this. They'd slap me and say, well, stop that. That's exactly what we need to do. But beloved, I submit to you. This week, take time and evaluate your life. Are there things that you're adding to the gospel? When you think about sharing the good news with somebody else, are there things that you accidentally, yet purposefully, maybe I should say incidentally, add to the gospel? Or do you share with them the pure, unadulterated good news of Jesus Christ and of Christ alone? You'll read the rest of the book of Galatians. It's going to pop up through the rest of it. What Paul starts this letter out with is the great problem the Galatians have, and I submit to you that it's the same problems that you and I face to this day, is to understand that Christ and Christ alone is the good news. Let us go to the Lord. Father, we thank you for this glorious good news that you've given us. May we keep to it and to it alone, oh God, Father, we don't have to add to, we don't have to take away from, that Father, we rest in your sufficiency, your singularity, and your supremacy this morning, oh God, Father, we rest that you and you alone are the good news that we need to share into a lost and undying world. Thank you that we enjoy this good news ourselves, that we can remind of ourselves of it every single week, but that also, God, we get to share it with the lost and the dying world. We thank you for all these things. We pray you go with us. We pray in thy Son, Jesus Christ, most holy and wonderful name. Amen and amen.